Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 102nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Michael Henley. Michael is the co-founder and CEO of Brandywine Oak Private Wealth, an independent advisory firm in the Brandywine Valley of southeastern Pennsylvania that manages more than $500 million of client assets. What's unique about Michael, though, is that He's a 34-year-old millennial who only just recently founded his independent advisory firm a few months ago as a breakaway from Merrill Lynch, where he had spent the first decade of his career and until recently was so loyal to the firm that he even had his wedding cake shaped like a bull. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it's like to build an advisory firm in the wirehouse environment, how the culture of wirehouses and the value of the wirehouse brand itself has begun to change in recent years. The way that wirehouses have increasingly de-emphasized the role of commissions, but have adopted forms of integrated grids that require minimum production levels in certain product categories just to maintain current grid payouts. And the way that once-dominant wirehouse technology is now struggling to keep pace with the growth of independent technology firms instead. We also talk about the breakaway transition itself how Michael and his team really did have to resign late on a Friday afternoon and then spend the weekend frantically calling clients to come with them, the reason he's chosen to build his client portal around eMoney Advisor and eschew a standard portfolio performance reporting tool like Black Diamond altogether, why Michael chose to leverage Dynasty Financial as a back office provider to support the firm, and the unique decision that the firm made to sell off a small slice of its future revenues to create the necessary startup capital to fund the transition and buy out the deferred compensation plans they would lose by leaving Mother Merrill. And be certain to listen to the end, where Michael compares the ways that the grass is and isn't greener in the independent channel versus the wirehouse, why most advisors may underestimate the burdens it takes to really be a business owner as an independent, as Michael discovered the hard way when he was forced to rename his brand new firm just a month after launching, and why he would still build his career again at a wirehouse if he was starting over, even though he's happy so far with the transition he's made to independence at this juncture of his career. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Henley. Welcome, Michael Henley, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. I'm I'm excited to have you on the episode here because we're going to talk about something that we we actually haven't really covered that much on the podcast yet, which is the whole world of of breaking away and transitioning from large firms to independence, in particular from wirehouses to independence. You know, there, there's been a lot written over the past couple of years about the breakaway trend, and you know, the like. Forget what the number was. You know, the the one or two hundred sizable advisory firms that broke away from wirehouses last year, many of which have a half a billion or a billion dollars or more, which is a big number. Although I think people sometimes forget that you know Merrill Lynch alone has more than two and a half trillion dollars. Like Merrill and Morgan are as large as the entire independent RA space put together. All of them, just Merrill and Morgan, thirty thousand advisors between the two. So when we talk about like 
there were 100 big breakaway teams last year. It's not actually that big of a number <laughs> relative to the the ecosystem of of wirehouses, but you know when billion plus dollar teams break away one after another, like there's definitely something going on there and that's a lot of dollars at stake that makes a lot of people interested in participating and has kind of created this whole ecosystem around breakaway brokers supporting that process over the past decade or so. But I'm excited to talk about you because you literally just did this over the past couple of months. Build a career at Merrill and have transitioned away to the independent side. And I'm I'm just excited to talk about the story and that decision and why you do it and, and I guess how it's gone. You're you're here with us, so it's it's going okay, I guess, right? Yep. So far, so good. So I'm excited to talk about it as well. It was an interesting journey. So at Merrill, I I am the first to say that, you know, all I really knew was Merrill Lynch. My entire team, all we really knew was Merrill Lynch. We're all legacy Merrill Lynch. We never, none of us ever worked really anywhere else. We all started our careers at Merrill Lynch. All we knew was, was Merrill. So I would say all things considered, it was definitely a significant decision, no question about it. And I, you know, I'm probably the prototypical kind of poster child of Merrill Lynch in that I met my wife at Merrill Lynch. I actually had a bowl as a wedding cake for the groom's cake. So kind of, I had about a half of our Merrill Lynch office at my wedding. Wow. So you you had a, wait, wait, just a bowl as a groom's cake. So you are, you were all in on Merrill. I was all in. I was going nowhere. So there's no way I'm leaving this firm. If you would have asked me two years ago, I said, I will retire from Merrill Lynch. There's no question about it. And it's interesting. I, I learned a lot about the independent space. I guess when I go back to, let's just call it five years ago, when I first actually saw you speak as an instructor for the CPWA, I pretty much have been obsessed with your work ever since. I still follow it to this day, so I really appreciate all you do. And I would just say that I learned a lot about the independent space in terms of, okay, what is the difference in working for a big bank and working for as an RIA, if you will? And kind of going through that whole, you know, exercise the last five years around how much the independent space has evolved. What are the pros and cons of staying at a at a big bank? What are the pros and cons of being independent? And really going through it, you know, oh, more and more and more, it became evident that for us to really give conflict free advice to clients or to wealthy families, it became more and more challenging within a large, you know, wirehouse environment. So I, I feel like there's a lot of discussion these days, well, gosh, I, particularly with DOL fiduciary rule over the past couple of years and now potentially the SEC's regulation best interests and, and all this discussion around fiduciary and conflicts of interest. And you know, certainly I know a lot of the independent channel likes to throw throw barbs at large firms and wirehouses in particular around conflicts of interest. And certainly if you go back if you go back decades, I mean they they were built to be distribution arms for their own proprietary products like that. I mean, that was kind of the roots as well as just distributing investment banking securities. They literally underwrote and and sent out like that was the purpose of broker dealers a hundred years ago. Yep. So when you look, when you talk about it today and, and say things like you wanted to be able to give more conflict free, free advice to wealthy families, like what sort of conflicts were you concerned about in a large firm environment? Like what impacted you in a day-to-day world? That's a great question. So the, the, one of the things that I would say unquestionably was the compliance side of, of being at a wirehouse, you're managed to the lowest common denominator. So for those advisors who really were doing what was in their client's best interest, they really put their clients first. 
we would have to document excessive notes, for example, really an excessive amount of documentation for every single thing we would do with a client. If we were doing a Roth conversion, if we were you know, buying a structured note, if we were doing long-term care, all these various things that if, if it's in the client's best interest, you were just managed as lowest common denominator standard. There's the compliance side. There is the excessive amount of time spent learning about Bank of America's products. So we would be pulled into a training session you know, a couple times a month on Bank of America's latest credit card offerings, on their checking accounts, on their you know XYZ benefits. And so just worth worth noting or pointing out for people who maybe don't know the full context of large firms. So you know, Merrill Lynch's a major wirehouse brokerage firm, one of the big four that are still left in the landscape today, along with Morgan Stanley, UBS, and, and Wells Fargo. Obviously, a very storied name that goes all the way back. But in the midst of the financial crisis was was sold to Bank of America. And so Bank of America is now the parent company that sits over top of Merrill Lynch's as the owner. So Merrill operates, I guess, semi, as many subseries do, semi-independently, but obviously still has connections to the, to the parent firm. And so so when we talk about like training sessions for Bank of America offerings, I guess that's like parent company would like to see more of their credit cards, mortgages, and other products adopted in their Merrill Lynch advisor subsidiary unit. So they're doing product training coming down on just making sure you understand these Bank of America products. Yes. And it was always a situation where, just by way of example, if we were going to secure a mortgage for a client or help a client you know, with a, a second home purchase, we're going to do financing, so a 30-year fixed mortgage, we couldn't really shop the street on behalf of our clients. So we could not go to, to B of A, Wells Fargo, Chase, Quicken Loans, and a local bank to shop the most competitive rate and closing cost terms. We really only had access to Bank of America's loans. You know, it was against kind of company policy to shop elsewhere. If we were going to look at a charitable fund, for example, you were encouraged to use Bank of America's giving account, not a Fidelity charitable fund that may have been much cheaper. So it's just a, it's not that I think in general, Merrill Lynch advisors are not looking out for their clients' best interests at all. In fact, I would say that most advisors at a wirehouse do put their clients' interests first. I just think it's the infrastructure that they're kind of working within. They just don't know what they don't know. So in a lot of ways, it's just a, you know, it's, it's just kind of the involvement of the independent space. So I, so I have a, I've kind of a few follow-up questions on this that I'm, I'm curious about. So one, like I, I feel like there's been a lot more discussion these days about wirehouse platforms being less focused about proprietary product, more open architecture, more open systems. Now, I'm, I'm noticing like a lot of what you just talked about is really actually primarily bank products from B of A as opposed to sort of Merrill's own proprietary products and, and mostly on the banking side. So it was the investment platform more open feeling to you and it was just the banking products that the parent company w- was trying to push down or giving you less open access choices? Or did you find similar challenges on the investment side, just trying to get your clients to what you wanted to get them to? That's a great question. I would say that in general, it was on the banking side more than anything else. But having said that, there were certain limits. In general, the investment platform was, was completely acceptable. I would say generally no, you know, no issues overall. Now, having said that, you know, there were certain limitations. For example, we run passive ETF models, very simple, plain vanilla stocks, bonds, and cash, nothing fancy. 
And there were certain limitations to have, you know, for example, you couldn't have more than X percent in one ETF. Even if it made the most sense for a $10,000 Roth IRA to just be in a small cap index, you know, one position rather than have 10 positions, you know, there were certain requirements that once we've gotten, you know, to the outside world here, we realize, okay, we can now do what's in the client's best interest truly is buy a single index fund and call it a day as opposed to having to have a certain number of positions. So, so you know, sort of by definition, that structure, like no, no Vanguard total market funds to just cover <laughs> right. that client's, you know, small account. Like, hey, you just, you know, you got a young kid they're going to college in sixteen years. We're just going to buy the total market and sit still. Like, you couldn't do that because of the over, ironically, like the overly concentrated ETF rule. Even if the single ETF is literally every stock that exists. <laughs> That is exactly textbook, a perfect example, because we would often say, wait, it's a $6,000 Roth for the kids. We do a lot of family gifting for, for families right. or we'll fund Roth IRAs for the kids and grandkids very often. And, and very often, to your point, it makes sense just buy VTI, the Vanguard Total Market Index, call it a day and be done with it. But no, we had to, quote unquote, actively manage it. If we wanted to buy one ETF, we had to have the child, the, the child or grandchild open a Merrill Edge self-directed IRA on the self-directed side, have to tell the client what to buy, can't give them advice because it's supposed to be self-directed. It just got to be this kind of mess of a lot of extra work for what we thought was a, was a simple yet effective gifting strategy. And did you also find challenges around, you know, I know wirehouses historically at least have gotten lots of criticisms around commissions, high commissions, commissions that unduly incentivize, you know, certain products or sales or, or transactions over others? Like, did you find yourself needing to, like, navigate the comp system in the same way that you had to navigate some of the platform limitations? Or did that feel more levelized? You just had limits on what you could do and what you couldn't do? Okay, so here we go. Since I've been at Merrill Lynch, I obsessively obsessively went through the compensation plan is to better understand it, to make the most of it. Cause just like the tax code, it's all about just understanding what you're working with and kind of, you know, re shuffling your resources to make sure that you get the best after tax or in the Merrill comp plan, best compensation outcome. If, if they, if they write the rules, you get to play the game with the rules that are written. That's how <laughs> right, it works. That, that is the name of the game. The tax code. You do that with your platforms. Absolutely. There you go. What, what do we say? There's two tax codes, one for the informed and one for the uninformed. Yes. So there are there are two comp plans, one for the informed <laughs> and one for the uninformed. So uh, let's just start, okay, with Team Grid. So, okay, I'll, we can kind of go back a lot of these comp changes over the years. So there was something called Team Grid, which is fascinating. They said, okay, we'll give you the highest cash grid rate of the highest producing advisor on your team if you hit XYZ hurdles, if X, if X percent of your clients have Bank of America products, if X percent of your clients have a, a securities baseline of credit, so what's called an LMA at Merrill Lynch, a loan management account, it's just a fancy way for a margin account, essentially, or a, a non-purpose margin account, I should say. And you'd have all these criteria you'd have to kind of abide by. And so long as your practice hit XYZ criteria, you were paid out at the highest cash grid rate of the highest producing advisor on the team, which which made sense in concept. You know, Merrill really did a good job of pushing for teaming because it, it made the team stickier. If, you know, one person left, the team's still intact, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You got to, at least now, if someone's going to break away, you got to, they got to break the whole team out, which is way more complex than just one person leaving. So if you kind of want to encourage some, I mean, in addition to the fact there's, I think, value for the end client around team structures, like from the firm's end, 
it's a little harder for people to leave when they're part of a team. So it helps a little on the retention side as well. That is exactly right. Yep. And I would just say that to so the team grid that made a lot of sense in concept, of course, over the years, they've, they've raised the criteria more and more. Now you have to have X percent of clients have to have a direct deposit into a Merrill Lynch CMA account, cash management account, or a Bank of America checking account. A lot of cross-selling kind of being pushed there. But that, you know, it made sense in concept. But I would say the compensation plan over the years has really changed. And in my personal opinion, it has gone the wrong direction. And I'll share with you why. Basically, so when I was the entire time I was at Merrill Lynch up until the past two years, the CEO or the president of Merrill Lynch was was John Thiel. John Thiel was a legacy Merrill Lynch guy. He's a rock star. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and, and the current CEO. But the compensation plan was always in a nutshell. It was very similar to running a very efficient RIA, you know, shrink to grow, shrink the number of families you work with, give them better, better planning, better kind of service, if you will and limit the number of families that you work with. It was always a kind of shrink to grow philosophy. Raise the kind of raise the average level of, of the median client in the practice, if you will. So basically just keep moving up market. I mean, it's the same advice we often hear in the independent channels. Like, you know, fire your smallest clients, get more of your largest clients, replicate those, and, and you just keep drifting further up market over time. And you serve as like f- fewer people with more assets, larger practice, larger revenue, but fewer clients. Exactly. And we took that almost to the second degree. So when I joined the, the two older partners that I'm that I'm team with now, Stephen Tracy, when I first joined them, let's just go back to 2012, I guess it was 2011, 2012, they had about 1200 clients. And I, you know, primarily transaction based, I had always been planning based. So it was really a great marriage, if you will, a lot of synergy. And what we ended up doing was kind of reducing the number of clients from 1200 to 400. And we did that kind of a couple different ways. One of the ways was moving some of the clients to Merrill Edge, the self-directed or kind of call center side, if you will. Another way was we formed situational partnerships with other advisors in our office. So, for example, we have a couple different what's called pools at Merrill Lynch, where basically we would keep you know, 40% of the revenue for life. The, the servicing advisor, the servicing team would keep 60%. And we'd say, okay, we have a handful of clients in the practice that we're not giving enough attention to. Well, we're going to move them over to a pool with you. You'll get 60% of the revenue. You'll service them, um, but we'll get 40% back to our primary business. And that model actually worked really well relative to the shrink to grow kind of philosophy because we were able to kind of continue to bring in larger new clients and move kind of the bottom of our book over to continue being serviced by the, by the other advisors, if you will. So that's just something that under the shrink to grow philosophy, I would say that in our experience at Merrill, you know, that was a great, I think, I think an appropriate compensation plan. There was something called a strategic growth award, which basically gave you additional compensation if you brought in X amount of dollars. They incentivize growth in the right way. We're, you know, we were always very selective on the number of new families that we bring in per year, making sure they're all a good fit, et cetera. But that all made a ton of sense. Now, backtrack, let's just say two years ago, Merrill, you know, John Thiel ended up stepping down. You know, I guess he quote unquote retired. Andy Sieg stepped in, you know, and then a lot of respect for Andy Sieg as well. But the compensation plans to follow were, were fairly significant. They really went from a what 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 Andy and his team called a shrink to grow philosophy to a grow to grow philosophy. It did, it did kind of set up that new slogan, didn't it? <laughs> after you, <laughs> yeah. you run shrink to grow for years, it can be like grow to grow just was, yeah. it was coming. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the grow to grow really said, okay, you know, now you have this minimum number of new families you have to bring in per year. And this is really when I said, okay, is our team at the right firm 
for the next 20 years because we are all very young. So six of our eight partners are between 30 and 35 years old. So when we look at it, and I run the team, you know, kind of my co-CEO, Allison, we run the team, you know, kind of, kind of the two managing partners, if you will. And we wanted to make sure that we, had, we were at the right platform or right, you know, firm, if you will, for the next 20, 30 years of growth. And once this compensation plan came out where we said, okay, we spent a lot of time really getting the book down to a manageable number of families, really do, you know, plan, you know, managing all aspects of their finances and their investments, you know, we really felt good about what we were doing. And now we have to bring in, for example, 25 new households. So the new, and the challenge that I had was that a new client at Merrill, you know, they had to have minimum of a quarter million dollars of investable assets. They have to have, you know, a $300,000 rollover was a new client, for example. You got the same amount of credit for a quarter million dollar client that you did a two and a half million dollar client. I mean, it did not make any rational sense whatsoever. You also got counted, you know, for for liabilities. So if we had, you know, the client's kid do a $300,000 refinance, we got a new household. So you had to kind of game the system and say, okay, let me see who I can do refinances for, for the client's kids. Let me see if I can, you know, get referred to the client's brother or friend or something to bring in just a couple hundred grand to get over this comp plan hurdle just to get paid the same we were paid the prior year. So we had to grow significantly with a number of new small clients just to get, you know, just to be paid the same essentially. But it, it, it is interesting. It does strike me that you know, the, these shifts, I mean, on the one hand, like a lot of the independent channel, I think has gone through some of the same pendulum swings back and forth of like, are you, are you moving up market to work with more affluent, smaller clients, or you saying like, no, 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 now that we're larger, we have more economies of scale, we should be able to serve more clients and bring our minimums down instead of bringing our minimums up. But it, it also strikes me just as you're talking about the kind of the incentives and the ways that you have to play the system. I mean, it, it, it sounds like, frankly, it's a lot less of what I think the the classic criticism around brokerage firms and wirehouses has been like, hey, you have to push this product, we'll give you a great commission, push this product, we'll give you a great commission, and 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 like trying to overly incentivize individual product sales. And instead that the way the the game is played now, as it were, is look, you like you just have to hit certain marks of total production or production, these various categories in order to get your whole payout on everything being consistent. So like, I'm not going to try to make you sell this one thing that has a really high commission, but if you want to get your continued payout on your aggregate client base and all the things you're doing, you better do at least a few of these things in these other categories, or we're just going to cut your total percentage payout and push you lower on the grid. That's exactly it. And I would say that they, they do that very strategically, of course. And I would say that now this year, the compensation plan came out. And I have a lot of my close friends are still at Merrill, of course. And basically what they're the most recent changes has been somewhat significant. So now they're giving the, the client associates, the CAs, $100, a checking a Bank of America checking account they open. So they're giving them kind of, we're going to dangle a carrot in front of you if you can really open a lot of Bank of America checking accounts. They've made the team grid require a higher threshold of bank products. They have increased the, the compensation plan hurdles around number of new families you have to bring in per year to get paid the same. So they, basically what they've kind of done is said, okay, they've actually raised the standards for a, for a, a client associate. Within a wirehouse, it's, it's fascinating compared to the RIA world because you know, the firm pays the, the, the support staff, if you will, as benefits, as well as they pay a nominal base salary of thirty-five or 45000 Then you're kind of, it's out of your pocket for anything over and above that. 
And what they do is they say, okay, you have to have $2 million in revenue per advisor for each CA you have. So for each associate you have, they'll say, okay, well, you know, they, they went ahead and raised that revenue requirement again in 2018 for 2019. So what they're really saying is, hey, do more, bring in more assets, sell more bank products, bring in smaller clients. We're going to give you less CA coverage. So it's, uh, I don't think it's terribly surprising that you see that the top advisors at Merrill continuing to go independent. So you saw the number, believe it or not, the number one advisor at Merrill at the time was actually Jim Atwood out of Boston. As you can probably tell, I'm obsessively competitive, obsessed with winning. So I check the production reports every single month in terms of the you know, top ranked advisors of the entire firm. And the number one production ranked advisor was Jim Atwood out of Boston. And he, I want to say left, and I think it was June, uh, like a month before we did, or maybe it was maybe it was March, April, but he went to actually First Republic Bank. And that was a tremendous move for Merrill because I'm, you know, one of my early mentors and a complete rock star is Jeff Erdman out of, out of Greenwich, Connecticut. And I just remember, you know, even Jeff was shocked at that saying, God, Jim Matt was one of my longtime friends. I can't believe he would go, he would leave Merrill. And sure enough, you know, Jim and his team left four and a half billion AUM. Then you saw Core Private Wealth out of New York City. That was another huge Merrill team that went independent entirely, without a service provider, which was interesting. So you're seeing a lot of the a lot of the biggest teams of the firm. I think as you know, as these big teams say, look, we're in the relationship business. If we can upgrade everything that we do for families, it's going to be a lot of work on the front end. But if we can get better economics in terms of a transition plan, in terms of succession planning, you know, kind of all else being equal, it makes sense for us to you know. To, to, to take the leap. So, so it was part of what led you to decide that you wanted to look in other directions. Essentially, the the leadership change from 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 Thiel to to Andy Sieg, and just the the kind of the culture changes that are now shifting around what it's like to be an advisor on the platform. Yes, I would say that's the culture shift was significant, and I would say even in our local office, I mean, there was significant turnover, and to be a completely truthful. The culture shift was what made us start to really look. And I'll never forget asking my, my partner, Allison, hey, you know, what do you think about sitting down with Greg Sarian from Hightower? He left Merrill in 2013. I kind of kept up with him ever since. He was one of my early mentors, you know, way back when. And he left Merrill for Hightower back when Hightower was very early on in kind of its infancy. And sure enough, okay, let's just see what he has to say. So we went and sat down with with Greg and his and his team. And sure enough, they said, you know, Yes, the grass is greener. There's a reason no one's ever gone back to a wirehouse, anecdotally. And essentially everything about you know, being independent, you can better serve your clients. You know, you'll work with a custodian. He talked about pros and cons. So everything's more modular in the independent world, where Merrill Lynch kind of platforms or packages together all the technology software all under one umbrella. Your WMW workstation has the Flex Monitor. It has the planning software. It has the CRM. It has everything kind of pulled together in one system. But he really went through and said, okay, here's what, here's what you can expect. And sure enough, you know, shortly thereafter, believe it or not, Michael, a podcast actually is what really got my attention. Listen to yours since, since inception, but also Mindy Diamond has a podcast for independence. And that was pretty much, I mean, as soon as I listened to that quite a bit, I reached out to her and said, is there really any harm in, in investigating, exploring more about the space? I don't think it's going to hurt. Little did I know, you know, as soon as I really started going down the path, and seeing, you know, how, especially demoing the planning software and eMoney and Money Guide Pro and saying, oh my gosh, you know, this is light years ahead of what we're used to. I'm a complete planning nerd, a tax nerd. So I just, you know, to me, it was just such a significant 
upgrade and everything that we're doing. I just it was kind of a, a no brainer. So talk to me about just the the mental shift of of going from I'm going to be a Merrill lifer and you know, the, the, the bull, <laughs> the bull is the groom's cake. I'm never going to forget that. Is there a picture? <laughs> can we get a picture? I thought you liked it. I can actually, I can actually share with you a picture. I sure can. All right. Fantastic. We will, we will get a picture of this up on the site. <laughs> the, the, this, that's just too awesome. My wife will really appreciate it. This is a complete surprise to me. So I am a you know, long time fan of the movie Top Gun. So when the groom's cake came out, you know, the song, the theme song from Top Gun came out <laughs> and sure enough, the bull wedding cake came out. I said, Oh my gosh. Cause they, everyone at Merrill knew I was diehard Merrill, you know, my entire career to answer the question, Michael, it, you know, the, the mental shift was, it's interesting. I guess I would start by saying my loyalty unquestionably is to our clients. Now, my loyalty is, of course, was to Merrill Lynch, but I would say more than anything, it was to my clients. I think of my clients, you know, as, as an extended family. I think of kind of my own personal family, my first family, my second family is my team here, you know, our RIA. Third family is, is, is clearly our clients. And I would say having our loyalty to your clients, it, it's, it was impossible for me to see what I, what I, what type of advice I could give them and what type of services we could provide and not do what's in their best interest. It really was, this, I knew it'd be a lot of work. I didn't like the idea of leaving the, the kind of the, my friends at Merrill, the competitiveness of Merrill. But I, but I knew that if you really think about it and say, okay, I can give clients better outcomes. We're all about outcomes. If we can give clients better outcomes, kind of keep their fees the same, it just did not, I could not sleep at night knowing I can give them better advice, but I'm choosing to be lazy and stay at Merrill Lynch. I would say if I would have stayed at Merrill Lynch, it would have been out of inertia. It would have been just because that's all I knew. You kind of fear the unknown, but I, it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have felt right about it knowing there's a better alternative out there. I'm just choosing to stay at a big bank because I just, you know, I just am afraid of the unknown. It'd be as simple as that. I think the number one reason I've talked to a lot of Merrill advisors the last four months from our old office specifically and I'm having lunch with quite a few of them in the month of December, but I would just say that the number one thing that holds them back is inertia. It's just that they think their clients aren't going to come. They think that their clients are wedded to U.S. trust, which is insane. They think that the clients need the big brand of a Merrill Lynch. And to be honest, going independent, you're able to, to use a, a kind of a big, well-known brand like a Fidelity, where we've taken assets from Fidelity for the past 10 years, and now we're moving all the money back to Fidelity. So it's quite interesting. But having a big, well-known brand like a Fidelity or a Schwab, there's really very little pushback from clients, especially when you explain, you know, your assets are held separately from our RIA. You know, we're giving you independent advice. But something that Cheryl from Dynasty has really done a great job explaining is the triangulation of advice with custody, advice, and product manufacturing all completely separate. I think kind of explaining clients, hey, this is how the independent world works. It mirrors what a family office has done for billionaire families for 100 years. You know, clients were very receptive to the independent model. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating piece to me that, you know I, know, I know a lot of advisors over the years that have started at big firms like Merrill and Morgan because they they wanted that brand name on their business card, right? I, you know, I feel like in the industry, there's a lot of debate about companies and who's better than who and all the discussions are on conflicts of interest and, and the rest. When you get to the consumer end, like there's two types of companies. Companies I've heard of that have been around for a long time and companies <laughs> that I haven't heard of and I don't know anything about. And Thank if you, you ask me which one I trust, 
it's the one I've heard of that's been around for a long time. <laughs> that's it. And yeah. so there's just a natural trust. I think a lot of independent advisors kind of underestimate how much brand trust there really is and still is with with wirehouses. But when you still need a custody arrangement as an RIA and you end out with large firms like Schwab and Fidelity and, and TD Ameritrade in particular, like these are still consumer household names. You know, I, I talked to a platform recently that was looking at coming into the advisor space and, and basically want to say you are one of our great edges is that we have no consumer retail presence. So we won't, con- we won't compete with our advisors the way that a lot of advisors are concerned about the retail competition from Schwab Fidelity and TD Ameritrade. But I had to point out something like there's a trade-off with this as well. You know, on the advisor end, yeah, it irks a lot of us to know that we're in competition for clients with firms like Schwab Fidelity and TD Ameritrade, but it helps our client trust because any prospect we talk to like, oh, well, your assets will be held at Schwab. They're independent from us and their sole focus is on custodying your assets. Like, oh, okay, well, that seems really safe. Like I I've heard of them. I know Schwab. I'm comfortable with that. Heck, if I don't like you at any point, I just fire you and go into any Schwab retail branch I want. I can work exactly. With, work with anybody. Like I've got a natural fallback. It reduces the stakes compared to going to an advisor only platform. And then just there's this interesting tension to me that, yeah, it's frustrating to compete with some of the custodians' retail divisions, but the fact that they have such a strong retail consumer presence is what lets independent advisors replicate the same kind of brand trust now that I think you got to build at a company like Merrill and others build at Morgan and UBS and the rest by having that nationally known firm that they can say like, here's where your client, here's where your money will be held. They do this for trillions of dollars. You'll be okay. I totally agree. I think that's very well said. I would, I would agree with that 100%. I would, I will accept the, you know, that the small amount of friction where maybe clients get fidelity viewpoints or something in their email and ask us questions about it. The trade-off being, okay, well, you have this huge, well-known brand for client custody. I think it's an acceptable trade-off in my experience. That, having a backup plan, if they're unhappy with you, like, you know, for better or for worse, they can just leave the money at Fidelity, be self-directed or otherwise. I think so long, and Fidelity comes right and tells us, which I really appreciate, that they're not, their retail advisors are not by any means trained in advanced tax strategies. They are not trying to do the type of planning that we are doing. So, so long as we're not a typical investment focused kind of team or firm, if you will, I think as long as your value add is on the planning side, I, I don't see it as that much of a threat. At least, you know, we've, we've had zero issues, no different than we were at Merrill losing clients to Fidelity or Schwab. So it's just a similar, you know, I, I completely agree. But it is an interesting piece to me that, you know, just the, this kind of mentality shift of moving away and deciding to transition. You know, again, I, I feel like there's there's a lot of barbs these days that independents still throw it at wirehouses around, you know, things like I said, the, the conflicted compensation and the role of commissions and you know the the point that I think you've made very well is that like this is stuff that gets set by the parent company like it's it's they define the rules of the game and then try to nudge advisors in certain directions, which is less about here's the giant commission payout and more of just hey, we just want to make sure you're doing a reasonable diversification of various products and solutions for your clients, so just make sure you at least do a few of these and you can continue to get the the compensation you get on the bulk of what you do for clients, except then they 
change the system over time and try to nudge advisors forward more, that it, it's, you know, I, I, I've gotten this growing appreciation in recent years about how important it is to separate out the advisors at large firms from just literally the large firms themselves. And a lot of the challenges you're describing like are not 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 problems with being a Merrill advisor per se, but just the way that Merrill and B of A made the rules of the game that didn't let you serve the clients the way that you wanted to to serve them or made you serve more clients than you wanted to serve because you had to grow to grow instead of shrink to grow. Exactly. And I would say it's interesting on that note, Michael, that if you really take a step back and look at it, one of the things I think that where Merrill may be trying to head towards, and this is just complete, you know, this is the shot in the dark. I have no idea. But the U.S. trust model is salary plus bonus. So if you're a U.S. trust, you know, private wealth advisor, whatever they call themselves, they, you are a salaried employee and you're, you're incentivized on an uncapped bonus based on the amount of assets you bring in per year. That's kind of the J.P. Morgan model. So J.P. Morgan Securities is, is you know, kind of grid rate, if you will, kind of like a Merrill Lynch. But J.P. Morgan Private Bank is on the salary and bonus side. So it seems like, at least from what we've heard over the years, that Merrill is trying to eventually get to that sort of model just to have a better control around compensation. I think Bank of America looks at Merrill Lynch advisors as they are insanely overpaid. And, it, and over time, even in the most recent you know, compensation call, they came out and said, you know, basically Bank of America, I'm sorry, Merrill Lynch's advisor compensation has outpaced Bank of America's revenue significantly. So it's, I think it comes back to kind of control from the top, if you will. And I think over time, it's fascinating to me that Merrill is still in protocol. I find that fascinating. I thought with certainty they would be out by now after I guess it was Morgan and UBS. And, uh, and left, UBS. Right? Yeah, I, I admit I'm actually surprised that Merrill has stayed in as well. I think Merrill is is kind of, if I had to guess, I think they're almost shocked they haven't seen more attrition. With Merrill staying in the protocol for as long as they have, they continue to squeeze the compensation plan Advisors are not happy. The culture is not what it was. You can ask any Merrill advisor. They all say the same thing. They're either there for the CTP plan, the retirement what, plan for a person. The CTP plan? Plan transition program. And it's basically a four-year payout where if you're more than, I think it's 15 years of service at Merrill, you essentially get 1.8 times your trailing 12-month production over four years. So if you're a $2 million producer, let's just say you get you know $4 million bucks over four years. So it's, it's a, it's a 1.2 million per year. But if you're a $2 million producer at Merrill, you're probably making 800 grand a year. So it's a pretty decent four-year payout. And like you get this when you retire, this is like a you retirement this, you, you lock into this and it's four years. So basically over that four-year period, you stay on as a consultant almost getting this income. But essentially what happens is you end up going into, I think it's a six-year non-solicit, non-compete for the rest of the team. So the rest of the team cannot leave the firm Essentially, it's a way for Merrill to retire advisors, give them a good amount of compensation to retire. But then after that four-year period, the advisor is essentially gone. Now, what I mean by that is they either have to retire and they're out of the business. What I'm finding, though, I think you had an article about this recently. Most advisors, and especially with my partners on the team, they don't want to just cut cut it off, you know, essentially just walk away from the business. They want to cut back to maybe two or three days a week you know, for the next 10 years. And so in the RAA world, we can really do that for them, give them a 10-year installment sale or what have you for their equity. It'd be long-term capital gains treatment instead of ordinary income and just much more flexibility around the kind of the bottom line economics as well as the structure of the deal. And and the 
And both the irony and reality, like if you're an advisor in that situation and you build up your team to be able to support you on the succession plan, you also build up to the t- to your team to the point where it's like, geez, I, I could pretty much just hang around and do like my top 20 or 30 clients and stay for another 20 years and make really good money because I don't have to do that much work because my team does handles all the rest of the clients in the in the practice sort of the, like I've joked about this in the past because I see it on the independent side as well. Like the, the actions that people take to prepare for their succession plan gets them to a more delegated, better run business that then makes them not want to actually do the succession plan and retire. <laughs> Cause now you're just making good money, maybe slightly less than before, but way less stressed and working far fewer hours. And you don't want to leave anymore. Yep. That's, that's the name of the game. It's funny. My partner, Steve, he's probably the, the exact example of that. So he's really two and a half days a week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday till noon. He's then made him the chairman, which he was really excited about. And he left, you know, 36, 37 years at Merrill Lynch. So a significant, I mean, he walked away from a, a long career at Merrill and that was a tough decision. I really, you know, we kind of got together kind of the five owners at his house and said, this is what we're thinking. And he, you know, had some, had some hesitation at first, but we said, look, it's better for our clients. None of us are happy at Merrill Lynch anymore. He was actually at Merrill Lynch only two and a half days a week, you know, when we first decided to do this. And once we kind of went through it and said, okay, everything's better for clients, better kind of atmosphere, flexibility, freedom. We don't have, we're not navigating a comp plan every single year, which is a, a ton of work on our part. We can be selective on what clients we bring in per year, not just randomly bring in a client because we have to hit some kind of XYZ comp plan hurdle. You know, he, I can tell you he, he cannot be happier. I mean, he is thrilled. So I, so I am struck that as you're talking about these transitions and, and planning and kind of the mentality shift, just the, the conversation of like, you know, can I make more money or is it more profitable or do I keep more of my bottom line as a as an independent versus a, at the wirehouse hasn't really seemed to come up much. Like, was that not really a factor or just not a factor at that point? Or is that not even holding for you? You just, you were making the transition for other non-financial reasons? I would say it was really non-financial reasons. This is, I'll be completely honest. As you know, in this industry, we make great money. I mean, we, we It's a phenomenal profession to be in. I would say I, I probably... If there was a significant drop in compensation by 50%, I, mean, I probably wouldn't have done it. But just knowing, okay, I'm probably going to make, give or take the same at Merrill. We want a nice office. A lot of things we want are more high end. You know, we wanted to be able to replenish the unvested deferred compensation for our older partners. So we leveraged a revenue participation note through Dynasty, our service provider. So we said, okay, we're going to sell 10% of our top line revenue to Dynasty. So that'll, that'll basically make up for the deferred compensation awards that Steve and Tracy are walking away from. I wanted to make certain that they were made whole. I would not have felt right about making the transition if our, you know, senior partners would have been, you know, lost out on, a, you know, significant assets. And but to be honest, in this new world, we can structure the replenishment of their unvested deferred comp as a tax-free loan, so a loan, you know, a personal loan, if you will, from the business. So it's tax-free to them. It's at some nominal interest rate, which eventually gets paid back, you know, via a liquidity event or what have you. So can you talk about that structure a little bit more of just what? what you did for buying out some senior partners for replacing their lost deferred comp. You said like, I, like selling a revenue anticipation note to dynasty. Like just, can you walk through that once more? I don't think that's something that a lot of advisors have heard of. 
Absolutely. So let's just say, let's just say at Merrill Lynch, we did, let's call it $7 million in revenue. So 10% of that would be 700,000. So we would sell, quote unquote, 700,000 of revenue, you know, to, to Dynasty, if you will, our service provider. And they would give us a, a multiple. So let's say I think it was a six or seven X multiple. Let's just call it six to make the math easy. So $4.2 million is the amount of uh, kind of capital they would give us over, over the first initial 12 months, kind of as, as startup capital, if you will. Now, that was incredibly helpful for us leaving a wirehouse because one of the things that I kind of required was I didn't want any of the partners, the staff or the owners to have any, any drop in compensation out of the gate. So we basically put ourselves on flat salaries the first four months of the year or the first four months of independence, essentially while we're in transition. So this is where our compensation was the exact same it was at Merrill Lynch. This is from a lifestyle standpoint, no issue. Then the rest of that, you know, RP in it, if you will, a good chunk of that is going to reimbursing unvested deferred compensation awards. So myself, Steve Tracy, Mark Allison, the five owners all had either restricted stock units, unvested deferred compensation, a lot of pre-tax dollars that basically vested over an eight-year cliff vested Merrill Lynch as ordinary incomes. So we said, okay, what is the let's what's fifty percent of the unvested value? Okay, it's X dollars. We're going to structure these reimbursement awards, if you will, as tax-free loans you know, from the business to each of us so we're made whole on the unvested awards. So really what we tried to get to was, okay, we want to, get, we want to make sure we're made whole out of the gate in terms of our you know, transition salaries, et cetera. We want to make sure we're not walking away from substantial you know, assets, if you will. So by doing this, kind of the RPN note was, was a, a beautiful thing for us. It really kind of solved all of our issues from a cash flow standpoint. So, so the, the dollars wise is they get 10% of your revenue, what, whatever it will be going forward, or they get 10% for a, a limited number of years, just until you've recouped the cash and there's a little bit of interest on it. It's like, uh, you know, they gave you four point, they give you 4.2 million cause it's a six X multiple on 700 grand of revenue. But then after six years, you're, you're done and you get your revenue back. Like, how does this how does this work exactly? Great question. It's a ten percent revenue share. Now we can pay, we can pay it back and reduce their revenue share if we would if we choose to. It's really a sort of an optional thing. So there's no prepayment penalty. Where at this point we've kind of run the numbers, and ideally, as you might imagine, if you're going to ramp up your RIA revenue, ideally you would you kind of reduce it to maybe five percent if you can while your number is lower, as opposed to if you get to twenty five million in revenue, that gets to be a big number. But They've got a 10% rev share for life. It means like they've got a permanent profits interest in the Correct. Yep. In, in the business. So you essentially just you 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 sold off a small chunk of the business, but rather than selling it in terms of selling a I guess selling a bottom line profits interest, you literally just sell them a 10% of top line revenue and they get it off the top instead of off the bottom. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And the way we looked at it was right, wrong, or different. We said Merrill Lynch was keeping 60% you know, getting very little in return, 10%, you know, to make us whole, we're willing to accept that. And well, and, and it's, and it's not just that they're taking 10% off the top, like they're taking 10% off the top and they wrote you a, a giant check. A, they're exactly. Right. That. It's like, yep, exactly. You know, you cash for that. That's not just a house keeps a cut thing. <laughs> right. But I think what it does, I think it helps incentivize both parties though, because dynasty now has skin in the game in terms of helping us grow. So right. in terms of marketing campaigns, in terms of branding, in terms of all of those things where they're really, that's really where their strength is in our opinion. They have a, a an embedded interest to help us, help us grow, you know, exponentially as opposed to without the, the RP net, if you will. So I think the more wirehouse teams you see lift out, especially partnering with a dynasty, for example, 
I think the vast majority will take advantage of the RPN note. Because Merrill's compensation plan, I can tell you, they've done such a good job. Every year, what they say is we've decided to shift 1% or 2% of your cash grid rate, the money you get now, to the Wealth Choice Award. The Wealth Choice is an eight-year cliff fest. It says, okay, if you go to a competitor, you lose it all. Invest after eight years, ordinary income. So basically, they keep shifting 1% to 2% over to the deferred side. And, and you always, each year's comp is on a new eight-year cliff for the comp that year? Exactly. So you, 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 you never get off the treadmill. <laughs> so let me right, say this. Basically. You never get off the treadmill. I've been in the business now eight years. So I started and I got my Series 7 license in 2010. I have never actually seen a Wealth Choice Award. Actually, my 2011 and 2012 you know, Wealth Choice Awards were significant because I you know, blew the hurdles out of the water, out of the gate at Merrill in their training program. And I would have vested my first Wealth Choice of like 150, 200 grand would have vested, I think, in 2020. So I left Merrill before I ever actually saw a Wealth Choice Award vest, unfortunately. So talk to us about the just the breakaway in the transition itself. You know, there's still a lot of stories out there of you resign at 4.59 p.m. on a Friday and then you hurry out the door with the five pieces of information you're allowed to keep from the protocol and then just begin this like onslaught of call every client and try to keep them over the weekend. Was that the world of what it was like breaking away or or is that like overly glamorized? Well, I guess that's not very glamorous. O- overly dramatized from what the reality is these days. I would say that's pretty similar in that. I mean, we did the you know, Merrill still part of the protocol. So we were able to take those five pieces of client information. That was very helpful. We resigned, I guess it was three o'clock on a Friday, maybe two o'clock. Believe it or not, in our local branch, here's what we tried to do. We tried to time it very well. Our local Wilmington, Delaware, Merrill Lynch office was undergoing a move from downtown Wilmington out to the suburbs. So they were actually undergoing an office move. So I said, okay, and this is maybe about a year ago, last October, November, we decided we're going to pull the trigger and do this. You know, Merrill's moving their office in July or, or sometime July, August. So we said, okay, this will be great. You know, there'll be so much chaos with the office move. We'll go ahead and leave Merrill all at the same time. So the timing will work out beautifully. Of course, like most things with commercial real estate, it got pushed back a number of times. So when we resigned on, on July 27th, the office was still kind of in chaos. They didn't move for about another month or so. But what happened was when we actually went in to resign, I hadn't worked Fridays in five years. I mean, I had I stopped working Fridays back in like 2013, just working a lot money through Thursday and kind of working from home Friday mornings a couple hours. So when you show up on a Friday, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so I show up on a Friday and my partner, Steve, as you know, is only two and a half days a week. So we also, we are, our whole team is there on a Friday. This is never heard of. And it's interesting. So the management at Merrill was not there when we went to resign. So of course, the managers, I guess, were at a Billy Joel concert. So we had to, <laughs> so we had That's to go so, ahead. And, <laughs> well, there's so no one. There. So you all show up highly suspiciously. On a Friday morning, because you're going to resign that day, but no one's there to see it or receive the resignation. No one is there. So we call Sharon Ash, you know, was our was our lead you know, kind of counsel from market counsel. She was a rock star. And, you know, she said, OK, you're going to have to resign to, to some admin or cashier or something. So we got Chris, the cashier. Great guy. And he said, OK, let me call. He was, Sharon advised us, you know, for me to call Lisa branch manager on her cell phone. So I, I never call Lisa and I had a, a good relationship with her overall. Oh man, you're totally going to ruin the Billy Joel concert. Here. I Let's just say I officially ruined the Billy Joel concert. So I call her and said, Lisa, you know, it's Michael Henley from Merrill. 
I have, I want to do this in person, but unfortunately you're not available. My, I'm taking my team and we're actually going to resign from Merrill Lynch. And she thought I was 100% kidding. Because remember, I am the poster child. She was actually at my wedding with a bowl cake. So she said, there's no way this kid's going to leave Merrill Lynch. So sure enough, she goes, why are you doing this? I said, I can't, uh, you know, a lot of reasons, but I'm not going to get into it. And here's our, you know, client list, our protocol lists, and here's our letters of resignation. And for a while, I just thought I was kidding. And then from there, we literally all left together, went to our temporary office. I think Dynasty, a lot of their, their, their folks were there. I think four or five of them were there. So we all, you know, did a champagne toast and then we're off to the phones. It was pretty chaotic. That first weekend, I would say, you know, definitely, I think you're calling. I think the most important thing I would say is it's unquestionably when clients entrust you with their entire financial lives. I mean, you are as important to them as their family, as you know, Michael. I mean, you're calling a, a couple hundred people on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and surprising them. And that's and we absolutely hate surprising our clients. So I would say the hardest thing for me was having just the complete shock of a lot of clients. You know, a lot of clients said, hey, what took you so long? Some clients said, you know, you got to be kidding. Yeah, I, 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 you were going to be at Merrill Lynch forever. So it's just something that I would say it's it was certainly a, a crazy experience looking back now. But I would say, uh, you know, the clients were in the relationship business. They, you know, they, 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 for someone to hire you, they have to like you, trust you, and see you as the expert. That's all there is to it, as far as I'm concerned. So it, the clients were very receptive for the most part. They wanted to understand some of the moving parts as to why. A like you probably hear a lot of a, a lot of the clients you'd expect to just be a slam dunk no brainer. You know, just send me the paper, I'll get it done. It's over. They wanted in person meetings. A lot of our clients wanted in person meetings to better understand what's in it for them, what's in it for us, etc. But unquestionably, I would say that you know, in hindsight, that first weekend is is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's one of the biggest frustrations I've heard from advisors going through the breakaway process that, you know, up until the moment you hand in your resignation letter, you are an employee of the firm and have to represent the firm. And part of what that means is you can't tell your clients you're leaving in advance. It means you're soliciting someone. It means you're soliciting for a different business while you work for the current one. You you can't do that. It's a fireable offense and can get you in some legal trouble. And so the only way that you can handle that situation is you can't tell any clients. Sometimes you can't even tell all your staff until the moment of the resignation. And then you're taking these people that you have these deep, intimate relationships with and saying like, hey, ginormous surprise in our relationship together. I'm, I, I really value our relationship, which is why I haven't told you about this at any point along the way. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just awkward, even in the best of circumstances. Like it, how, it really how did you talk through that with them? I mean, what we we just started off by saying, you know, unquestionably, our loyalty is to you, and it's it's really I, I would say to them something along the lines of it's my job and responsibility as a CEO of this firm or as our of our team to get you and your family access to services and re- to the best services and resources in the industry, regardless of whether or not those services are at Merrill Lynch. So it's it's so we've decided as a team, every single one of our partners you've worked with, all the people you've worked with from Merrill Lynch the past ten years, how long they've been clients all came with us. So that was really helpful, I think, as the moving it kind of entirely as one succinct unit. It's not like some of us stayed behind and some of us were kind of skeptical about whether to come or not. I think that was helpful. But overall, it was just a, you know, we're doing what we what we know is in your best interest. We're one of many teams doing this. A lot of clients, you know, they, they get assurance from other teams have done this already. We'd send them articles of other Merrill teams, huge Merrill teams that did the same thing. 
And so I think that was really helpful. And I, I think it was really so just just pointing out to them that hey, other 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 teams have left Merrill and gone independent, and their clients were still well served. You will be too. Like you would actually use that as social proof. We would. And actually, we would use, I can't remember if it was from you or Mindy Diamond that shared the Schwab, I think it was called the Schwab sophomore study, where it interviewed a bunch of breakaway teams and kind of what percentage of clients went with them within you know six months, 12 months. What was the reason for going, you know, more objectivity, more open architecture, et cetera. That study actually helped a couple clients on the fence say, okay, this is in your best interest. You're not locked into our team. It's the same arrangement as before. So that also really helped as it relates to kind of convincing them this is in your best interest. We're one of many teams doing this. So that's, I think a lot of the, I think the bottom line is if, if planning focused Merrill teams listen to this podcast, I would highly encourage them to at least talk to recruiters like a Mindy Diamond, Lewis Diamond. They were phenomenal around due diligence around, okay, their job is not to force us to go independent, but let's understand the options, the pros and cons. I think a resource like you is invaluable as it relates to here's the benefits, here's the differences. And if I had to do it all over again, I would just say that, you know, doing due diligence is critically important. It's around what technology you're going to use. What are the surprises you may, you know, you face like the name, for example. So we, you know, we worked with a marketing firm to select our name out of the gate, which was Wyeth Private Wealth, you know, because of Andrew Wyeth, et cetera, the historic painter. Who is, who is local to the area in Delaware there? He's actually Chadsford, Pennsylvania. So our, we're actually in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, near Longwood Gardens. But yes, he is. And so we said, okay, this will trademark the name, no issues. Thought it made sense, you know, no, no big deal. We were never entirely crazy about the name, to be truthful, just because we didn't, you know, we didn't have a better name to go with. The name that Allison and I always wanted was Brandywine Private Wealth. That was the name that we absolutely loved since day one. Where does Brandywine come from? Because the, the Brandywine River runs along Pennsylvania and Delaware, and we work in the Brandywine Valley. So the Brandywine Valley is actually Pennsylvania, Delaware, kind of northern Delaware, southeastern Pennsylvania. So Brandywine Private Wealth, we said, oh, this is a this is a no-brainer. Well, that was already taken. There's an RIA or an LPL team, actually, in Willow Willowdale, Pennsylvania, Brandywine Wealth Management. So too close, couldn't go with that one. So after we heard from the kind of Wyeth family estate, if you will, around, you know, them being oh, no. like <laughs> you, you went after the like Wyeth private wealth named after the Wyeth family or the famous Wyeth and the Wyeth estate came after you and said, you can't use, you can't use our family name. So how, how's this? You're about a month into your new business. I mean, it's, it's chaotic enough. I mean, going through all this stuff, calling clients, surprising them, you got to be kidding me, you know, getting clients one by one moved over. And you're constantly, it reminded me a lot of starting off in the business at PMD and Merrill Lynch, where your first month in, I'm cold calling strange. I'm cold calling my family for money. I'm, and I'm like, what did I get myself into? This is a disaster. You start to have second thoughts around, am I really doing the right thing here? And sure enough, the month in, we get this formal letter to me. I'm the CEO or what have you. So sure enough, it gets directed to me. You know, they reference a bunch of media articles. Michael, you've been cited here in XYZ, you know, using, you've named the firm after our family. So you, so you get a, you get a letter from a lawyer and first presumption <laughs> is like, oh God, Merrill's going to fight us. And, yep. <laughs> and then you find out it's from the Wyeth family estate. Oh, yes. That was lovely. And sure enough, it's funny because Merrill, shockingly, was, in our experience, knock on wood, was we followed protocol to the T. They, we had zero issues. I mean, we had absolutely no issue whatsoever with Merrill. But, but, but you followed the protocol to a T. 
We did. Yes. Yep. That was something that was really, really important. Now on the Wyatt side, so we said, okay, um, it was by the trademark attorney who's, who's phenomenal. She's out in Washington state or Oregon. I'm sorry, one or the other. And she said, what name did you want originally? I said, we wanted Brandywine Private Wealth. I'm, you know, emotionally attached to this name. I love this name. She goes, you know, why don't you just add a second word to it to strengthen the, the you know, the trademark ability, if you will, like Brandywine Oak or something. And sure enough, you know, me, Alice and Mark were all sitting in the room. We said, that's not bad. Like oak for, you know, strength and resilience in terms of investing and all that. So we said, you know, we'll go ahead with that. So this, the name that we changed to right at about six, maybe 90 days in, I think it was just south of 90 days, was Brandywine Oak Private Wealth. And we collectively absolutely love this name. And compared to the previous name, we were able to incorporate a tree logo that we really wanted and, you know, kind of a path to being intentional around your wealth. A lot of kind of tie-ins. And and the and the lawyer, the lawyer cleared this yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> exactly. You know, so that was an interesting exercise. But it's funny in hindsight, the one thing I will say is kind of going through this process is you have to be open minded. You can't get emotionally attached to any name or to really anything for that matter. It's just it's something that there's going to be surprises. Everybody warned me. I think you were one of them early on that going independent, you're going to have a lot of surprises. So you're going to have to just, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You're just going to roll with the punches. Do not react don't have a breakdown over the name. You know, it's just something where it's almost, and clients naturally kind of default to our reaction. So when the markets are turbulent, if we're panicking and, and, and reacting, they're going to react. If we are calm and kind of, this is the normal order of things, they don't react. It's the same exact thing with the name change. We joked about the name change with a bunch of clients before we actually announced it. They all said, who cares? You know, who cares about the name? It's like, Michael, I'm, hire, I'm hiring you, not the name of your firm. <laughs> exactly. They all said, we never understood the name Wyeth. Why'd you even do that in the first place? We joked about it. They joke about it now. So we kind of jokingly ordered about a couple hundred pens, Wyeth Private Wealth pens that we give out. Now we tell them they're collectibles to so hold on to them. <gasps> <laughs> so from, it's, that, uh, from that brief month when we were Wyeth. <laughs> Exactly. So it's certainly been an interesting experience, you know, overall. So how did you choose some of the platforms, providers? You know, I think you mentioned at various points, you you work with Market Council, who's a one of the law firms that works with advisors who are breaking away. You've mentioned Dynasty. So I, I guess I'm wondering both just what is your call like your platform, your stack? now like what what thing what vendors and solutions are you using and and i'm kind of curious about just what what led you to choose some over the others you know if you are working with dynasty you were probably talking to competitors like hightower as well so who are you using and kind of what did you what led you to choose them versus the other options that were out there Okay, great question. So I would say that we went through the process. So we met with Mindy and Lewis Diamond, and they kind of talked us through the Raymond James model, the independent broker-dealer model. And that was actually something that is also invaluable in terms of you don't know what you don't know. So I had no idea what the difference was of an RIA versus an LPL. I had a colleague of mine go to LPL within the past say, a year or two ago. So that was, I knew what that model was. I didn't know the difference, though. So kind of going through with a recruiter, understanding better the pros and cons of each kind of model, that was very helpful. And then meeting with Greg Sarian at Hightower, the challenge that we had, so we we basically looked at Dynasty Financial, Hightower, and Focus Financial. And I would say that Hightower, the challenge I had there was that you're basically branding yourselves, I think, under their corporate RIA. So you're not really creating your own RIA. And one of the things I said, you know, Alice and I talked about was if we're going to go independent, we want to go all the way. We don't want to do this half in between thing and still be the Henley Group or something at, at Hightower or something like that. 
We just felt like we were constantly underneath their umbrella. Now, I had another colleague a couple of years back, 2014, left Merrill and started Quadrant Private Wealth under Focus. So I had a kind of a direct contact at Focus in terms of what they offered. And that was, it. Focus seemed like the right model if you were willing to sell a lot of your upside. If you, they were going to buy 50% of your, your kind of cash flow, if you will, it was a, a significant amount of compensation up front. You know, maybe 20 years from now, when, when, when Alice and I are 55 and we want to sell the practice, maybe we'll go ahead with a focus or something like that. But we just couldn't wrap our arms around why would we sell so much of our upside when we're in a kind of a growth firm? We're constantly growing. So we just, us being so young, we couldn't justify why to go with a focus. One, well, and we hadn't really pointed this out earlier, but you're, you're an advisor in your 30s. Like it's, it's not like you're breaking away in your 50s having done, 20 or 30 plus years and saying like, hey, I just kind of want one more stint as an independent. I'll get a couple more years out and maybe get paid a little more. Like you saw the overwhelming majority of your career in front of you as you're looking at this and kind of time horizons and opportunities. Exactly. So the, the longer the runway, I would argue the bit, the stronger the case for independence. I mean, if you have a 10, 15, 20 year runway, I mean, it is an absolute no brainer, at least in my opinion, for, for, for advisors who are willing to do to own a business, not just be an employee at a big firm. And I would say that Dynasty, one of the things that I can say with 100% confidence is that they're our first conversation. So, you know, we talked to the, I guess the lead recruiter was actually a gentleman who now went to Focus. I think it's Mark Dupoy or something, I forget his first name, who was phenomenal. He was a rock star, really well-spoken, you know, helped us understand the model. But then our first conversation, Hightower, we talked to them briefly. But our first conversation with Dynasty was with the CEO. So we spoke to Cheryl Penny on our first conversation and I'll never forget it because he, his, he's younger in his career. I think you and him went to school together. So younger in his career, very similar in age, to, I think, to, to us. And so we're in our you know, mid-30s, early 40s. And he had a big runway ahead of him. And we knew right then and there, just from a culture standpoint, it was a slant, this was the right fit for us. I mean, he was very familiar with Merrill teams. He was very familiar with kind of the pros and cons of the wirehouse, the different models. He was able to solve for our liquidity need around the RPN note. So that was, that was helpful. And just the culture itself, Dynasty being a lot of younger employees, you know, we felt was it was a great fit. And of course, our first meeting in person with Dynasty, I'm, you know, raving about you as usual, saying, oh, I follow all Michael Kitts' work. He's a rock star. Austin Philippin was there, said, oh, I went to school with Michael. And so, so, yeah, so, so for, yeah. For, for those who aren't familiar, like the, the sheer random, you know, it's a small world coincidence, Cheryl Penny and I went to college together at, at Bates College up in Maine. And 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 we're overlapping there for three years at Bates, and and only discovered a few years ago that we were there in classmates and overlapping. Bates is actually a rather small school. The, each class is only about four hundred students. Whole school is sixteen or seventeen hundred undergraduate only. So like you're at least acquaintances with pretty much everybody, even if you don't know them that well. And I, Cheryl and I did not, you know, really only had overlapping acquaintances. We're never in the same dorm together, which is notable because there aren't that many of them. But we, we went to school together and caught up and reminisced about this a few years later. And Cheryl has hired a lot of former Batesies. And so a whole bunch of Dynasty are <laughs> former classmates of mine who, who all landed there and, and went over there to work with Cheryl. So there's kind of this small world Bates college connection between me and the Dynasty folks out of sheer coincidence that we just discovered a few years ago. 
It's a small world, and it's too funny. Because I, I, I will say, Cheryl and his team have done a phenomenal job stepping up around this name change. This has been a, a heck of a time-consuming task. I mean, redoing all the marketing material, all that stuff. So I would right. say it's, that it's uh, not just like, oh, we're not doing Wyeth. I guess we'll do Brandywine Oak. Like you'd already made the website, the marketing collateral, and the pens. Everything. <laughs> like I mean, you, so that, you had to redo yeah. everything on your marketing. The only thing I will say, thank God, is that in hindsight, we hadn't purchased yet our signage for the building. So we were, we were right at the point of purchasing all of our signage for the building. And sure enough, we said, you know what, you know, let's just go ahead. And, you know, fortunately, that was not purchased yet. We have all the new pens in now. So everything's good. Oh, see, I, I have to admit, I would have gone the other way. Like the pens are disposable, but to actually have the Wyeth signage, like that's that's a keeper, man. You like you 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 hang that somewhere in your house that stays forever. <laughs> that's very very true. If we were to purchase the signage, it'd probably be in my basement. That's true on the wall. Uh-huh. Yep. yep, yep. You can't you can't lose that at that point. So so the draw for Dynasty for you was this. You know, we we want the full scale independence. And being a younger firm that still has a long growth horizon, just literally being aligned to a younger firm that has a longer growth horizon. Yes, that that was huge. And I would say as it relates to all the vetting of the technology providers, for example, the custodian vetting, I mean, all that, all those ancillary aspects, we would do weekly calls from when we decided to go independent. We would do weekly calls every Friday for six months or something. So we kind of go through, I mean, every aspect of building an RIA, market council, you know, we were very pleased with them overall, you know, very pleased with Sharon Ash. And I would say that all things considered, uh, you know, there's the due diligence process can be overwhelming. You know, why Money Guide Pro versus eMoney versus the other two that we looked at. And then we had, you know, in terms of, you know, vault software, in terms of reporting software, in terms of we had to demo all these different tech providers and kind of see what made the most sense. And it's 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 unquestionably still a learning experience where you're trying to dial in to what do you need as an RIA. Your entire philosophy or your outlook changes being a business owner because now you have the cost of all these technology providers. So, for example, at Merrill Lynch, we had Salesforce. We didn't know any different. So all we had was Salesforce. It's all we knew. We couldn't stand it. We didn't like one aspect of it. I can tell you our whole team despised it. But we were required to use it. So now that we went, when we went independent, you know, kind of the CRM we ended up with was Salesforce was kind of by virtue of that's who we had at Merrill. And we said, okay, we compared the cost of Salesforce to a, to a basic C. All we use a CRM for is basic notes. Client called in, you know, atta- we were using really a, you know, e-money as the primary system for client interaction, but the CRM for basic note taking, nothing crazy. So we, we kind of demoed Redtail. And after launching, we said, okay, we can cut our costs by like 15, 20 grand a year by going from Salesforce to Redtail. So Redtail, I think it's 100 bucks a month, 15 users. It's all we need. Redtail integrates with eMoney beautifully. So it's you know, so there's a lot of things that we liked about Redtail that, that really were, were a better fit. Interesting. And so, so you were on Redtail because it, it got done what you needed it to do, and it was a heck of a lot cheaper than Salesforce. You mentioned eMoney Advisor, so I guess that that's planning software for you. What what was that exploration or transition like from what you were using previously? Does I don't even know, does does Merrill have a does Merrill have some deal where you're also using eMoney or Money Guide Pro or one of those there or are they on their own proprietary tools? Great question. Yeah, they're on there, they're using their own proprietary tool called the Wealth Outlook, which you know, not knowing what you don't know at Merrill, it seemed to get the job done. But I would say now being an eMoney user, it is when I say it is a game changer, I can't even begin to tell you how this is probably the number one thing that I love the most about being independent 
is that you're really able to demonstrate outcomes for clients. A partial Roth conversion strategy from age 60 to 70, it sounds great on paper, you know, but not, but really being able to show the client that before and after, hey, this is going to add a million dollars to your family's wealth 30 years from now. You know, forget the stock market. This is just from the tax planning alone. It really can demonstrate the value that we provide as, as planners. And I would say that we're using eMoney as the primary client portal. So clients log into eMoney. They have access to a lot of the reports that we show them. We use eMoney for the vault. So they want to upload their trust, tax returns, any of those items. They do that there as well. So I'm, I'm struck that you're using eMoney as the primary client portal and, and not something on the performance reporting side and Orion or a Black Diamond or, or one of those solutions. Yes. So basically, we actually started off with Black Diamond and not knowing what you don't know. For Merrill advisors listening to this podcast, I would say the CRC, CRC is kind of the, the client relationship center at Merrill. That's kind of the performance reporting tool in and of itself. It's a proprietary internal tool at Merrill Lynch. That's basically the Black Diamond. So that is essentially what Black Diamond is in terms of performance reporting and asset allocation analysis, size and style, et cetera. Black Diamond, for us, being a planning-focused kind of firm and team, our value adds on the planning side. So we did not want clients logging into a performance-centered you know, client portal, if you will. It just it was sending the wrong message. It was focusing more on short-term performance that we found resulted in inappropriate behavior in terms of reacting to the market, et cetera. I would say e-money, when clients log into e-money, they don't – so for certain clients, because we're doing our performance reporting now – through Fidelity. So through our custodian, we're doing, we basically have added performance reporting, asset allocation, et cetera. They refer to it as performance measurement. Right now, the Fidelity tool is only, you can only track performance on Fidelity accounts, but come 2019, they're going to add outside custodians so we can track the client's alternative investments or annuities or whatever it is. But what we really liked about it was clients could log into one portal, their e-money portal, and they could view their, their financial plan. They can review the vault. They can view all the stuff they're used to seeing. They can also see if we enable them performance reporting. So if they want to see year-to-date performance of their various accounts, you know, they, they can do that all with any money, which we thought was very, very helpful. I'm, I'm fascinated by that because it's, I'll admit this is a, a pain point of frustration even for our advisory firm. You know, we're, we're not Black Diamond users. We happen to be Orion users and, and have been Money Guide Pro users for a long time. And despite being a planning centric firm, it, it drives me nuts that we don't have a good planning portal to send clients through to because Money Guy Pro really hasn't built one or certainly nothing remotely close to the capabilities of, of what eMoney Advisor does can send people into, into Orion, but then they're, they're logging and looking at, at investment stuff first. And I mean, I don't want to hide that from them. Like they should be able to access it and get it. Frankly, they can get it through their custodian anyway. So like we, we still want to present that, but I would love to be able to send them to a planning portal first and let them drill down to the investments if they want to, because a few clients will and the, and the rest won't. But I feel like that's largely been a, a gap out there, right? Like every, every software company wants to make their software the portal. So like you know, the CRM wants to make their thing the portal and the, the performance reporter wants to make their thing a portal and the, the applying software wants to make their software the portal and, and clients go nuts because nobody wants to log into a zillion different portals. To me, the ideal has always been it should be a planning portal first, which I think is part of why eMoney is growing so well. But I, I actually didn't realize that they had like a fully integrated fidelity performance, what do you call it, performance measurement 
system on the back end. So does that mean you actually got rid of Black Diamond and you're just literally using Fidelity only for performance reporting? We did. And that was another significant cost saving. So that was something that when we looked at both and said, okay, do we need this kind of a additional firepower as it relates to performance reporting, we said, you know what, you know, if we can cut the cost by it, it was a significant cost difference because, because basically Black Diamond was a basis point kind of charge and asset base fee versus a flat dollar amount fee per account. So we said, okay, if we can cut the cost down dramatically, we don't, none of us are going to use Black Diamond. We just don't, it's not the way we run our practice. So all in all, basically in e-money, if I'm a client logging in, I have all, I, I log right in and see my net worth. I have the vault right there. I can go to report to the top of the client portal and I can click on one of the drop downs is performance measurement. So it's still not right in their face. The way Black Diamond, it's right in your face. And the thing that's cool with using Fidelity as a custodian is that we can actually turn off the client performance within their fidelity.com login. So we make sure they can only see performance within the context of their overall financial plan, as opposed to them going to fidelity.com, seeing what the market did that day and how did I do that day. They have to kind of go to, you know, their e-money portal to actually get to the performance reporting. And and can I ask, like, what what do you pay for Fidelity performance measurements versus Black Diamond side? Like, it, it's flat fee for firms or advisors or just down to the client and account level like Orion and some of the others? Yeah, it's actually at the account level for Fidelity. So Black Diamond, if I'm not mistaken, was five base, three or five base points. I'm drawing a blank now on the, on the actual, you know, total assets under management, if you will. So larger accounts, more AUM, Black Diamond got to be pretty cost ineffective. You know, again, I'm not saying it's bad, but for, for people that may use it a lot. If you got small clients, BIPs look good and per account looks bad. If you got big clients, Per account looks good and basis points looks bad, right? That's exactly. Uh, you, know, you play the you play the system. You play the That's game. Ex- exactly it. And I would say that Fidelity, I think it's like you know ten dollars per account. The first five hundred accounts, the next five hundred accounts are eight dollars. I think the floor is six or something. But it ended up being you know much more cost. It was about a fifty percent drop in cost overall in terms of the difference. I mean, that's a impressively low cost for Fidelity. I think. I think. Most of Orion's pricing is something like forty to seventy dollars per account. You're know, scaling down with larger sizes, as, as most do, but that still means Fidelity is pricing their internal one at you know a minuscule fraction. Granted, Fidelity only, at least for now, but you know just pricing out at less than a quarter of what Orion is for performance management, and I guess build a deep integration to e-money since they own e-money. So that should be an easy integration for them. To yes, get that is, that's huge. I think more and more you're going to see these custodians. I think you've talked about this a lot, where Fidelity and they own e-money now, they're going to have their own internal tools. They're going to compete with the black diamonds. I think the more they can have you do it in-house, you know, it's simpler for us and for any wirehouse breakaways, it's brilliant on Fidelity's part because we are used to one system that has everything in terms of the client portal and our portal on our side. We want one system that does everything. So now, you know, we basically come into work, have three windows open. We have Wellscape, you know, eMoney and Redtail. And you essentially have pretty much everything you need from a kind of client standpoint in terms of, you know, our daily work, if you will. And, and is that what literally drove you to make the decision to work with Fidelity? I mean, you can buy eMoney separately and it sounds like you didn't even start with their portfolio tools because you you started with Black Diamond instead. So like what what actually brought you to Fidelity? 
I would say the biggest driver of Fidelity was East Coast, huge brand over here. We do a lot of work primarily with DuPont corporations or DuPont, you know, retired executives and what have you. And DuPont and Dow are now merged together. So there's Dow DuPont and Dow's corporate 401k plan is with Fidelity. Believe it or not, DuPont's 401k plan is with Merrill Lynch, but it's there's a lot of rumors it's all going to be moving to Fidelity within a year or two. So ultimately, Fidelity's huge kind of 401k presence was a was a significant reason that brand recognition, local Fidelity presence was helpful in terms of you know, brand recognition. So Schwab was to San Francisco for you? To San Francisco for us. And I would just say that overall, our clients know and love Fidelity. They, I mean, if I looked at our entire practice, believe it or not, I would say that the majority of our flows coming over to kind of to Merrill as we built the practice were from Fidelity, Vanguard, Merrill Lynch 401k plans. Very few were from Schwab. So we didn't, so our clients didn't really know Schwab. So they already knew Fidelity because you were taking the money from Fidelity. (laughs) So now you're just bringing the money back to Fidelity. That's exactly right. It's all coming full circle. So that's now the, the core stack for you is, is, Fidelity for custody and using Wealthscape and their portfolio tools for investment management, e-money on the planning side, and Redtail for the CRM. Yes. So what does Dynasty do for you in this mix? Like for advisors who aren't familiar, like what is what is where does Dynasty fit in now? I would say all middle middle and back office support as it relates to the day-to-day operations of the business. So when it comes to, you know, reviewing commercial real estate leases, when it comes to negotiating the terms of the commercial real estate lease, when it comes to billing, all the, the kind of the advisory fee billing that they, they their operations team handles all of that. When it comes to investment research, so for example, we have a lot of Dow DuPont executives. So naturally, we get a, we we want as much Dow DuPont you know stock research as we can get. So they'll have you know one or two of their investment guys send us on a weekly basis all the various firm research on Dow DuPont stock. So a lot of the HR functions that Merrill will do. So when it comes to offer letters and all those kind of things that we just had no either interest or time in managing all those various items. We can pretty much reach out to Dynasty for anything and everything we would normally have reached out to Merrill Lynch for. So it's just a, to be honest, I would say that if, you know, having been in a warehouse, we're used to having everything done for you. There was just no way we were going to go out there and just do it on our own and say, okay, who the heck knows? We don't know what we don't know. We wanted to have a resource we could constantly go to. And the folks at Dynasty know well that I, I kind of text them all the time with questions or, or, you know, what's going on with this or that. So, um, so how, I'm just trying to think, how does that, work exactly like you do you have a primary account rep equivalent at at dynasty that becomes your primary point of contact when you've got just whatever these questions are and you can just come with everything from hey we're we're hiring a new employee we need to make an offer to them to we're negotiating a commercial lease someone over there review this and let us know if it's okay Yes, I would say you just re- you have a relationship manager, kind of your primary point person, and they'll usually direct any inquiries to the appropriate person. But they'll have I don't know if he went to Bates College or not, but Justin Winkle from Dynasty is is absolutely brilliant, and hopefully you can get him on the podcast because he's a rock star running the M and A space. And I think I think you have the firepower of the other you know thirty or forty or whatever it is network firms in their network. So by leveraging other kind of network, other kind of the entire network, you're able to get economies of scale. So just for example, if we're going to do a structured note, you know, we'll do it through Dynasty of Relationship with Halo. And if we're going to, we can kind of create our own structured note and you know, shop every single bank or every investment bank on the street and say, okay, who came back with the best kind of terms for our clients? So they, they really give you the kind of the firepower of all the, the network kind of collectively, if you will. 
Okay, so just the whole nature of leveraging economies of scale and 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 essentially buying power of just dynasty aggregated together with I forget what their number is now twenty five or thirty billion dollars of collective assets just gives them more buying power and better terms than what you might get if you were going directly. Exactly. Yep. And also with Fidelity, especially, they have a huge relationship with Fidelity. So things, so we had a couple of surprises out of the gate. So just here's an example. So for clients who have at Fidelity less than a million dollars, but they're not getting e-delivery for statements, if they're getting paper mail statements, there was something like instead of being $4.95 for you know, trade commissions, it was $17.95 or some ridiculous number. We were just blown away by this. Stop and we could, taking the paper statements. <laughs> oh my god! And this is right. Some of our clients—they're—they're—they're they're, they're eighty years old. They will—they don't even have a computer. They don't—they don't even look at this stuff online. So it, it sounds crazy to say that. So we went to Dynasty and said, "Look, this is crazy." They were able to go up the chain of fidelity, get it addressed, and completely resolved. So now they're four ninety-five, whether they get paper or not. So it's just certain things that you know, in terms of escalating certain issues, we wanted to make sure it could get done right away and efficiently. I can tell you right at, you know, right now that name change, you know, Dynasty's marketing team was unbelievable around getting this all done, updating everything simultaneously. We made the announcement on the Friday. Sure enough, everything was seamless. No surprises there at all. I can't imagine trying to do a name change on, on your own. Well, you know, you you make an interesting point with this. You know, I, I, like those, this world where fidelity upcharges your trading commissions if you won't get e-delivery and you make them keep sending out paper statements. And and not to pick on Fidelity, the other custodians have have done similar things to try to incentivize people to shift to to e-delivery. It it does, again, illustrate that point, I think, earlier, uh, similar to the earlier discussion that just the large firms have certain business objectives they want to accomplish. So they change the rules of engagement to try to you know, nudge people and incentivize them in a certain direction, whether it's, you know, we, we want to lift up the mortgage volume at B of A, so you have to do this many mortgages and households in order to get your full grid payout, or Fidelity saying we'll charge you 4x the trading fee if you don't get e-delivery. Like, all, all firms do this, but it is an interesting difference between when you're at a company like Merrill and just those are the rules. You can play the game as best you can, but you don't get to change the rules versus when the firm you're working with is not your employer, they're your vendor, as Fidelity is to an independent RIA, where if you don't like the terms, at least there's more opportunity to negotiate or use a firm with more size and scale like Dynasty to leverage the negotiation and say, no, no, I want different terms for this part. This isn't working for me. And it at least it's on the table. Not that you always win those those debates or those items that you want to push back on, but at least it's on the table because because it's a vendor relationship, not an employer relationship. It's a different relationship. When really, I, I say to clients all the time, you know, we are not employees of Fidelity. We don't receive a dime of revenue from Fidelity. It's our job, and you talked a lot about this to keep Fidelity's costs as low as possible. We want the drag from Fidelity's fees as low as possible. And Fidelity does a phenomenal job, very, very low cost provider, of course. But I, I completely agree with your kind of take on this in terms of industry outlook as it relates to 
custodians should charge a flat basis point fee to RIAs and just give them free trading. It's, 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 it seems we play so many games around. Should it be an asset-based pricing? Should it be transactional-based pricing? What's going to keep our client fees as low as possible? Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you give us choices, it's really easy. We'll just do the math and pick whichever one gives our clients the <laughs> right. most and you the least, and we'll do that right. one. Exactly. I, I just I don't know why that is something that it just seems so much simpler just to charge a, a fee for sort of flat basis point fee, whatever it is. And I make the same argument around realtors and attorneys. They should be a fee for advice model, just like our industry is. It just seems so much. It's 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 a, a you're on the same side of the table charging a flat basis point fee, and then we'll we'll be inclined more so to use the you know as opposed to having to pick certain ETFs off the iShares list, and then you know it, it just gets to be this game of you know, trying to keep fees as low as possible for clients. Yeah. And is it similar structuring with Dynasty as well, that they charge you basis points or a percentage of revenue or something similar for the, the wraparound services that they're providing? It is similar in the sense that it's a basis point fee for the core services, but there is they, they keep it pretty straightforward. There's going to be breakpoints of we, you know, if we have more than a billion dollars under advisory assets or what have you, or at the custodian, you know, we'll get a, a breakpoint over and above that of X. But it's but there's there's not really any games to play, which is very very helpful. And the, what I really liked about Dynasty also is that you know being an RIA owner, we're able to they'll pass through cost savings down to us. So for example, even though I, I want to say the Salesforce is their primary kind of CRM provider for most of their network firms, we said, look, Salesforce is not for us. You know, can we get those cost savings in hard dollars? Yes. Look, Black Diamond is not for us. You know, I understand there may be contracts, etc. But can we get those hard dollar cost savings passed down to us? Yes. You're the business owner. You tell us what you need. And so they've been very, very flexible around not locking us into a box the way we were before. And not that you have to give the details since it may have been negotiated, but like the the neighborhood, at least, of dynasty pricing. I mean, are we like, are we talking five basis points? Are we talking 25 basis points? Like, how does how does their cost relate to your overall just fees and revenue? It's a it is a basis point fee, and to be completely honest, I don't know the exact. I would say it's in that range, somewhere between ten and twenty basis points, somewhere in that range, if I'm not mistaken. I would say this: our most recent P and L net of the our margins are probably somewhere around sixty percent or thereabouts. You know, let's just say after the RPN note, after all expenses, overhead, et cetera, staff compensation, et cetera. So I would say we basically went from about a forty percent quote unquote grid rate after staff compensation at Merrill to about 60%, all else being equal. So that's essentially margin after overhead, but before your payments to yourselves as advisors? Correct. That would be the, okay. that's before it's net of everything that owners, that's basically EBOC, if you will. Now, having said that, I would say often, I think advisors at wirehouses forget that you don't necessarily need to bring over the same amount of clients. If we're at, if you have $7 million of revenue at a 40% grid rate at Merrill Lynch, your, your, your net compensation to the advisors is 2.8 million give or take, right? So if you're 2.8 million, if you only bring $5 million in revenue over, you know, let's just say at a, as an RIA and you're 60% margins, you end up better off. You know, you don't have to, there's this, I think there's this kind of idea that as a wirehouse advisor, you have to bring over 90 to 95% of your clients to, to be paid the same. And I just, I, we have found that to be completely inaccurate. Well, and, and that's one of the things that I feel is often understated or underrepresented in some of the industry surveys, even around like, hey, you changed firms or broke away, how many clients came with you? And it's, you know, it's like, 
80%, 85%, 90%, which is not a bad number by, by any means. But for a lot of those firms, it, it's not because 15% of their clients said no. It's because they didn't ask 15% of their old clients because they didn't want them to come along because it, it, you know, it wasn't a profitable client or it just wasn't a good fit client, right? You know, I, I'm sure we can all think of a few clients in the practice. It's like, you know, if I made a transition and he or she didn't come, I'd kind of be okay with that. I can assure you that there was a lot of that going on where basically clients were not a good fit. We were like, thank God we can get rid of so-and-so. They just, they, either they weren't a good fit. They took up a lot of time. They were either performance maniacs trying to beat the S&P 500. No, thank you. We basically were so happy to kind of trim the book and say, okay, a couple hundred meaningful relationships we want to bring over. And we're going to bring those over. No questions asked. Upgrade what we do for them. But I would say that the other thing I, I think is often we were kind of surprised by is the number of clients we've added. A couple, not, not, not crazy, we've moved over all our existing clients, but a couple new clients who have said, we would have never joined you if you were at Merrill Lynch. We, they don't like big corporations, don't like big banks. They like the idea of an independent kind of local presence. You know, a founder of a company here locally, you know, we had a couple of the employees. Sure enough, he said, you know, I would have never joined your firm if you were at Merrill Lynch. I, don't, I, don't, I want nothing to do with Bank of America. And I can't tell you while I was at what really opened my eyes the past couple of years in terms of making this transition was the number, a couple of referrals that we had gotten where a great client says, hey, I want you to meet. I'm in Florida meeting with a, with a family. I want you to meet a referral of mine. She has you know, four times the amount of money that I do. And the day before the meeting, I would hear back and she said, she's not going to make it. You know, Something came up. And I, I finally asked the client, what happened here? I said, oh, her son got burned by Bank of America. You know, She will never do business with Bank of America. And I don't think you, people can appreciate how many potential prospective clients just don't like Bank of America. Well, and and unfortunately, Wells Fargo is having some similar issues these days. And and you can see it in their advisor attrition numbers of advisors leaving that just like the, the problem, you know, in theory, the bank is supposed to be this great synergy to the rest of the platform. And, and honestly, if I was making a wealth management firm from scratch, like no regulatory barriers or other limits, I wouldn't even I wouldn't make it in an RA or a broker dealer. I'd make it at a bank because if you really live at the center of a client's cash flow and you support them on the cash that moves in and out, like investments and all the rest is is ancillary. Like, you know, I, I don't look at my portfolio that often. I certainly don't run my personal retirement projections that often, but you engage with your cash flow every day of the year. That is so true. You have to like you 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 spend your cash. If you're great at this at the center of where the cash is, you, you you're at the center of the relationship. Except in practice, <laughs> banks don't seem to be executing that holistic wealth management relationship very well. It just it seems to be the bank mentality right now. They don't they don't measure themselves on depth of client relationship. They measure themselves on number of products per client household and like it's it's all about product wallet share instead of a bound wealth management relationship and and so now ironically to me even though i would make a wealth management firm with a bank at its center a lot of wealth management seems to be moving away from banks unless they're sort of unique standouts like first republic that seems to be doing something differently over there than a lot of the other banks yeah, I, I totally agree. I think First Republic seems to be on the forefront in terms of kind of, at least from what I've observed, doing it more right than some of the other big, you know, wirehouses. So that's the, oh, it's it's definitely uh, definitely interesting. And I would say another thing that that is certainly different, 
at Merrill, you know, we were able to up until like 2015, 2016 charge for a financial plan. So very often sitting down with a prospective client, you know, a lot of the planning, the work that we're going to do on their behalf, eight to 10 hours of labor with a maybe, you know, are you, are you going to come on board or not? What I liked the idea of doing was charging an upfront fee for a financial plan. So something called a financial foundation, Merrill allowed up until 2015, where you could essentially charge up, you know, 500 to $1,000 for a financial foundation. And if the client decided to come on board, they'd be reimbursed that fee. You know, it was a, it was a great model because at the end of the first discovery meeting, you were able to say to a prospect, you know, there's two ways that we can proceed. You know, one is a free plan, it's a retirement forecast. It's not going to cover tax, estate, insurance, gifting, all the other stuff. You know, the other is a comprehensive plan, it's going to cover everything. There's a charge for that one. And the, the, the families that were willing to write you a check in the first meeting were committed. They had skin in the game. They took the second meeting a lot more seriously. They would never miss the second meeting. It's very often when they didn't pay for the plan at all, they would, you know, no call, no show, or they, you know, they cancel last minute or something. They paid for something. If you paid $1,000 for something, you're going to show up to that next meeting. And in the RIA world, now being able to charge again for a financial plan is powerful because giving, you know, if, if you're sitting in front of the right prospect, if you give them a choice of a free plan or a comprehensive plan for a fee, that the right prospects will always pay the fee. I mean, every day of the week, you know, $1,000, we're not going to charge ten grand for a plan or something. But basically, they're always going to you know, you know, pay for that out-of-pocket cost to kind of see, okay, am I going to be okay? Because at the end of the day, we're in the business of answering you know, what I call the expensive questions. You know, will I be okay? Can I afford to retire? Will my family be okay? Because you don't really get a do-over, so you can't afford to get it wrong. So I think it, you know, for, for the right prospects, you really have the, that kind of being able to charge out of the gate for the initial planning we do on their behalf is, is powerful. So paint us a little bit of a picture of just what the business looks like now at Brandywine Oak. Like you're, you're four or five months into the transition. Did clients come? Like what's the, what's the size of the firm now? What do things look like as it exists today? Yeah, so just to give you a little bit of background, so at Merrill, we were about, let's just call it 900 million in assets, give or take. Now, I have to caveat that because a lot of that was what I would call dead assets, you know, low basis DuPont stock that had, it was not advisory assets, if you will. We had, at the time that we left, only because I track these numbers obsessively, about $650 million in advisory assets. So money we were actually, you know, revenue producing, you know, managed assets, if you will. We're at approximately 550 million now, so about four months in. So we're, I don't know, 80%, 75%, whatever that is, of where we were when we were at Merrill. And I would say that we are still actively moving clients over. Just last week, and they're, you know, two $5 million clients are just busy. I think the thing that advisors have to keep in mind when they break away, while it may be a good time to break away in your and your team's life, it is not always a good time in the client's life. And they're not going to stop what they're doing to, to sign, sign, you know, a thousand signatures <laughs> to move every single account they have at Merrill over to you because you thought it was a good time. So I think a lot of it is just a, you know, kind of, it takes time to get everybody moved over. But I would say that in general, the vast majority of our families have moved over. We have about 300 families, maybe 320 median families, around two and a half million dollars that we oversee for them. Clients range from probably one to $50 million that we manage for them. And it's interesting in this kind of new world, we were primarily just basis point fee, very plain vanilla. You know, they were paying a fee of X at Merrill Lynch. We've taken away the downside breakpoints. We never liked at Merrill how if the client had two and a half million dollars, their fee was 0.9. If the market took a nosedive or they took money out, the fee would jump up to 1%. If it fell below one and a half million, it jumped up to 1.2%. If it fell below a million, it go to 1.3 or 1.4. There were always these breakpoints on the downside to kind of protect the brokerage firm's revenue, a down market. 
it's nice as an RIA being able to charge you know, 90 basis points, period. And if they refer, you know, we do a kind of a referral pricing model. If they refer a colleague, we'll lower their fee five basis points for life, which seems to be, you know, a lot of our DuPont retirees find attractive. And one thing I'll just mention, Michael, that's that's been interesting is that being able to charge a flat fee now is also helpful because we have some DuPont engineers and you know, kind of retirees who just want a purely passive portfolio. They want the S&P 500. They want an international index or two, you know, bond index, keep it very simple, you know, pay us for planning. And it's, it's helpful to be able to say, you know, look, we charge, you know, minimum fee for a new family is 15,000 a year. That's, that's it. It's a dollar amount minimum, not a, not an asset minimum. So if a client says, Hey, I have $10 million, I'm going to pay you 15 grand a year for the planning you do on our behalf. You're going to do two meetings a year, et cetera, review my tax situation, estate plan, et cetera. Help me optimize charitable and family gifting. It's, it's great to be able to charge a flat fee, debit their pre-tax IRA. They can pay the fee before tax dollars, which is helpful. And it, it just it's a nice kind of alternative to an asset-based fee, which is all we had to pick from America. Flat, flat investment management fee for you know a simple portfolio you're not as actively managing. Exactly. Yeah. So now that you've lived some time in both worlds. You, know, you spent almost a decade at Merrill and, and now building on the independent side. So like, how do you compare and contrast the two having lived on on each side of like what what's working better for you on the independent side? What's actually still lacking on the independent side that, that the wirehouse still did better? That's a great question. So I would say first and foremost, you have to be prepared to be a business owner. And I think it's, you know, no matter how much due diligence you do, it's not just coming to work every day doing advisor work only. And I think that a lot of the points you make, Michael, are spot on around you get into this business because you love helping people. And then as the business gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you're you're more and more disconnected from the actual planning side of the business. So I think the more you can kind of empower the people around you to help do a lot of the heavy lifting around the day-to-day operations, the better. I can say that, you know, for example, Allison, my number two on the team is kind of the co-CEO, chief operating officer. She does a lot of the heavy lifting for me. So I can kind of need to focus on clients. You have to build that kind of team structure around you because otherwise the business ends up owning you. So I think the one big compelling difference I would say is that you have to be prepared for what it entails, unquestionably. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan like you are of Mitch Anthony. It's far better to prepare than it is to repair. So the more due diligence you can do early on, the better. So you have to balance, especially if you're a Merrill advisor, a Merrill team, that the chance they may leave protocol with doing proper due diligence, because there was just kind of, we had a, kind of a gun to our head during we were over the due diligence process, because we kept thinking Merrill was going to leave protocol, and we wanted to make sure we had protocol protection as it relates to calling our clients. So I would say that doing, you know, due diligence early on is, is helpful, and trying to get is, and talk to other, other wirehouse teams who have done this. That was by and large the most valuable thing that I did was talk to other wirehouse teams who have gone down this road. Here were the surprises. Here's what we liked. Here's what we didn't like. But comparing and contrasting, I would say the one thing that the independent space, I think the more they can pull together kind of the, all the technology providers under one umbrella, the better. I think eMoney is doing a great job with that. But coming from a wirehouse, one thing that was really nice was you have one system. I mean, there is one tracking system for everything. Not having to log into different systems, different logins, as it gets to be almost overwhelming in terms of where you go to find what, when you're very used to having one system for everything. So I think the here's just a simple thing in eMoney. I, I went to the, when it comes to kind of getting used to eMoney and kind of how that whole planning system worked, I went to the eMoney Summit in, I think it was late October, or early October, mid-October, whenever it was. 
And that was phenomenal because I was able to go talk to the experts there in person and say, okay, I'm trying to show this. I'm trying to show, you know, they, they changed state residency before they died to avoid the inheritance tax in Pennsylvania. How do we do that? How do I model that? And just kind of having the e-money experts there in person, I would encourage anyone who's going to use e-money or probably money guy approach the same thing, you know, go to the summits and learn from kind of the, the best practitioners because that was a, a powerful thing. And I would just say that, you know, all in all, e-money being at kind of the forefront of our clients interface has been has been you know, a game changer for us. It does. It's just giving clients that portal and the ability to log into the portal. Yes. And having just their entire financial plan right in front of them where, you know, they can go to their cash flow whenever they want to see it. OK, if we only earn, you know, five percent on your portfolio from now until you're 100, you know, you're happily ever after. You know, so it's just it's, it just helps them focus on the long term. And I would just say that, you know, in terms of at Merrill, I think there will always be a large amount of kind of, you know, rock star, you know, phenomenal financial planners at like a wirehouse just because they don't want the inertia that they're there for inertia reasons only. It's just it's too much work to move. I do think having said that, there's going to be a lot of bolt on opportunities where, you know, for example, we've already established the firm. There is Merrill Lynch advisors in our local office. who I know with 100 percent certainty deserve better than the current you know environment that they are in. So I think you're going to see more bolt-on opportunities than anything else, as opposed to just building it from the ground up. Building it from the ground up has been, you know, an exciting process, but I can't, I can't see all the Merrill Lynch advisors that I know going through this process. I mean, it's just it's a lot to undertake. Yeah. So, so as you look back, like, do you regret the path that you took of building ten years at Merrill and then transitioning? Would you still do it exactly the same way if you were doing it over again? Honestly, if I uh, be brutally honest, I absolutely would. I'll, I'll tell you why. I think Merrill has the best training program in the industry. I think if you can make it at a wirehouse, you can make it in this business, period. <laughs> and the reason why is because the new money, the new household hurdles are not insignificant. They are, they are real hurdles. And if you can actually you know, cold call and build your business from the ground up, then you know 100% certain that you can make it in this business. And I think that type of competitive environment, starting off in the business, you have to, it really teaches you to go after it. You're going to have this drive from that kind of culture, if you will. At least when I did the training program back in 2010, 2011, I absolutely love, I had to be number one in every single category all the time. So I think that sort of kind of drive I think you, you. I don't necessarily think you get that from a small RIA to start with. Now, I could be totally wrong, but in my experience, even, even talking to other financial planners at conferences, that they joined a small RIA to start with, they weren't held to the standard of you've got to bring in money to make it in this business. Period. I mean, it's it's a tough blend on the one end because a lot of people don't, you know, like I I didn't come to bring in clients and money. Like I came to do me some financial planning and and. You know, that's fine. You can do that. I think there are actually increasing opportunities to do that. But if you want to be a lead advisor, and in particular, if you want to build an advisory firm, like at some point, you got to get comfortable with getting out there and convincing people to do business with you. Like even if you're selling advice in yourself and not products and and, a, and whatever a parent company is telling you, like you still have to be able to sell something, even if it's yourself, which means eventually you got to learn how to do it, train how to do it, or put yourself in an environment where you're going to have opportunities to, to get good at it. Or, or you do hit a, a pretty significant ceiling as, a, as an advisor in your career. You can make good money, but you will hit a ceiling if you're not prepared to either get clients or learn how to get clients. 
I think that's that's very well said. And I would almost take it a step further saying that, you know, if you want to be a lead advisor, you have to be able to, to, you have to be strong on the sales side, bringing in money. That's, that's a requirement. But if you're okay being a paraplanner role, which is critically important because the paraplanner role almost by definition allows the rainmaker to go ahead and bring in the money. If I didn't have a bunch of financial planners at my firm doing all the financial planning, you know, for us, if you will, and I'll take a look at it before we present with the client. I wouldn't have the time or the ability to go out and bring in the money. So I think you have to just have kind of both roles at the firm or on the team, if you will. But I think whether you're a pair planner or the rainmaking advisor, I think, you know, one of the things I've always said, even to trainees at Merrill, is that number one, you have to outwork your competition. You know, you cannot substitute work ethic in this business. Number two, I've always said you can never stop learning. You know, basically, as soon as you stop learning, it's over. I think you always have to be wanting to get better. But number three, never lose your humility. Never be impressed by your success. I think those three things, if you kind of follow those, you'll, you'll probably be in pretty good shape you know, long term. So what's the, what's the vision for you from here? Like, where does it go from here? You, you've made the transition. You've survived. Most of the clients came. <laughs> so, you know, wipe the sweat off the brow. Like, thank God we're going to make yeah. it. Right. So yeah. where does it go from here for you? I would say it's interesting because there's a lot of talk about M&A in this industry, and I'm not, I'm not against M&A, but I've had a couple advisors join the team over the years, and they haven't been a good fit, so I've kind of coached them off the team. I would say that makes me a little gun-shy on M&A. I'm not saying I'm against it. I would say, Alice and I really, we want to continue to keep, I think, the growth very, 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 I would say, responsible and deliberate. So I would say if we're, we're probably going to look to grow from maybe $6 million in revenue, maybe next year, full year revenue, to $10 million in the next five years or so, but being very selective on the number of new families we bring in per year. On the advisor side, I'll say we're, we're big on organic growth. So one of our partners, Brittany, we stole her from another team at Merrill before we left, and she is a rock star. So I think she's someone that we would ultimately promote to an advisor role. So we're really big on kind of almost grooming and kind of coaching the, the partners on the team, as opposed to grabbing a, someone from a competitor that has $100 million to move over. Now, I'm not saying I'm against M&A by any means, but I would say we're, we're much more thoughtful around organic growth. I think we prefer it that way, kind of building the team from the ground up as opposed to just bolting on you know, a bunch of other advisors that may not fit our culture or maybe more investment focused. We're very planning focused. So we just want to make sure that any kind of additions we add to the firm are, are the right fit, very similar to clients. I would say that long term, our kind of runway at 55, we want to sell this thing. So I would say... We'd like to go from probably one to five billion in assets over that time period. I mean, nothing too, too crazy. But I would say it's, you know, being very thoughtful and kind of much more concentrated growth than pure M&A, just doing a bunch of kind of focused transactions where I think the one gentleman from Focus that was, was phenomenal, but a lot of M&A, it just, I think you lose, you know, you get more and more disconnected from the business. We're going to have to manage these other advisors and they're going to, they're going to come to me with questions and whatnot. So I think it's going to be a much more organic growth trajectory. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast around success. And, and one of the things we always ask us is just how they, how they define success for themselves. Cause it, it, it's a word that means different things to different people. So you having just build a firm by your mid thirties to 6 million of revenue is a phenomenal success, success by virtually anyone's standards. But I'm curious for yourself how do you define success? For me, I, I always keep things really simple, probably to a fault. I would say that success is really doing the, the things that you love 
in the places that you love with the people that you love, which is basically what I do every day at work. I love this stuff. But I think it's as simple as that. I think it's just, you know, I don't think there's a monetary aspect of success. To me, it's just as long as you're doing what you love in the places you love with the people you love, that's 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 it. Wow. I, lo- I love it. Doing the things you love in the places you love with the people you love. Fantastic. Well, I, I thank you for joining us, just sharing the story and the, and the journey of, of what you've been through. I'm, I'm excited to see where it grows for you from here. Thanks, Michael. And thanks for all you do for the industry. And I'll get you a picture of that uh, bowl cake in a, in, a, in a few minutes. Fantastic. So this is episode 102. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 102, we will have a picture for you of the Merrill Lynch bull grooms cake, as well as links to some of the other providers and solutions that Michael talked about. So thank you again, Michael, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.